It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of children. So in the aftermath of the release of the probable cause affidavit in the murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German, the murder sheet heard from a number of experts who reached out to sort of lend their expertise on what the information was included in the probable cause affidavit. So we're very grateful and gratified for that. One of the experts we heard from was a veteran defense attorney with many, many years experience in handling serious cases, including murder cases, including capital cases. He offered to come on and share with us and you his perspective on the value of the evidence in this case. This attorney we spoke with 
uh, is still actively practicing. Because of that, he asked that we not include his name. Uh, obviously, we know his name and we were able to verify that he is who he said he was. And he does indeed have the experience he claims. So in this conversation, we'll be getting at that. And we also continue to welcome more experts to come forward and let us know what you think about some of the information contained in the probable cause affidavit. Obviously, as we say at the top of the shows where we're talking about the PC, a probable cause is not the prosecution's entire case, but we feel it is relevant to talk about because it contains a lot of information that might be kind of indicating where the case could be going. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet. And this is The Delphi Murders, a defense perspective on the bullet. I'd let you ask questions, but this, there is, uh, from somebody who's done this kind of work, I can tell you there's a whole bunch more that they are not putting in there. There's no doubt about that. Because this, uh, what is in, I haven't, I've, I've not read it thoroughly. I've listened to different, you know, uh, verbal versions of it on YouTube, people reading it. And uh, so, subject to me overlooking something in it, this is incredibly, you would, um, but anyway, you ask questions and then I'll come back. I'll, I'll make sure I, I say what I want to say along the way. Absolutely. Um, tell us about, you know, tell us about this evidence and your experience as a criminal defense attorney. Uh, wh- you know, is, is this strong ballistics evidence? Can you just kind of talk us through that, how it's considered in the criminal defense l- world? Um, incredibly weak. And um, the uh, what what people commonly call ballistics is really tool mark examination. Um, if someone scratches a surface with a screwdriver, that's a tool mark. If somebody um, cuts something with a pair of scissors, that's a tool mark. And uh, the tool mark that is being made in, in this process is uh, typically when a, a bullet 
goes down the barrel of a gun, there's rifling inside the barrel. Uh, there's no rifling in a shotgun, but in long rifles and, and pistols, there's rifling. Uh, like when you throw a football, you want it to spin so that it is stable in flight. And different uh, manufacturers have different uh, grooves, numbers of grooves. Uh, some are right-handed twists, some are left-handed twists. There's all kinds of ways to know when you see the bullet gets fired that that there are ways to narrow it down. Um, but that's not what they're talking about in this case. They're talking about an ejector. So what what happens inside a gun is when the, the trigger is pulled, there's various mechanisms, but to boil it down, when the trigger is pulled, <clears throat> a firing pin hits the back of the, the cartridge and the bullet, uh, the, the firing pin causes the gunpowder inside the cartridge to explode and the bullet moves forward rapidly and then goes through the barrel and the rifling uh, is uh, grooved into the bullet as it goes through the, the, the um, front of the gun. Um, <clears throat> when that process happens, the cartridge remains inside the gun. In the old days, you had a revolver. You'd have to twist the barrel and, and, and pull the pull, physically pull it out or turn it up. And, you know, you've seen that sort of thing theatrically. But in uh, a gun, uh, like a modern semi-automatic gun, what you have is an, uh, a, a something that uh, a piece of metal that strikes the empty cartridge from the side and pushes it out. So, and that's what makes it easy to fire quickly. You pull the trigger, and then the bullet goes out, and then the ejector, half second later, really milliseconds later, hits the side of that cartridge and pushes it out of the side of the gun, and another cartridge comes in to the chamber, and then you can pull the trigger again. You don't have to turn the revolver. You don't have to do anything manually. That's why it's semi-automatic. That ejector is not like the rifling in the in the in the uh, in the chamber in the barrel, but the rifling in the barrel is it has grooves and it's multiple grooves and you can tell a lot by the number and the direction of the groove that are, that's burned into the bullet. The ejector is just a piece of that flat piece of metal. Sometimes it's round, but sometimes it's flat, and it hits the cartridge and it just pushes it out of the way, but it hits it hard enough to make a little mark. Well, it's, it doesn't have enough characteristics on its surface to make a hard and fast determination whether it came from a particular gun or not. Now, that's the defense perspective. Um, the uh, prosecution says, oh, yeah, we can, you know, we can individualize from this one particular impression. But, um, you know, I, I believe personally that that is just completely incorrect because there's just not enough information there. It's like saying you can individualize because, oh, a white male was seen doing crime, so this white male must be the, the one. You don't have enough information. You can't, you can maybe not, maybe not exclude a gun, right? You can say this gun could have made this mark, but there's just not enough information to be able to say for sure. It's like uh, another example would be a DNA test. If you have, out of the 16 standard markers, if you have one marker that matches the, the suspect, but you only have one marker in your, in, your, in your sample, all you can do is say, well, it could be. 
but it, you can't match until you get more information. And the way that the, the ejectors work, you're, in my opinion, you're never going to have enough to say this is the gun to the exclusion of all of the guns. And uh, there is some, uh, there's a lady that, uh, and I can send you a website uh, later uh, that you can, uh, for, for, but there's a lady up in uh, up in the Northeast somewhere who I, I went to a conference who has uh, extensive research about about even ballistic, what we call ballistics out of the barrel of the gun is not not even good science. But the ejector is far weaker than than what goes through the barrel. And and that's even if we're looking at the ejector mark, you know, under a microscope and looking at it up close. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Now, okay. So if you if, if there's a defect on the ejector, if there's a you know a little scratch uh, on the ejector that's you know deep enough that it will leave an imprint as it's the cartridge. Well, maybe you can say then that it's, it's like if you see somebody smile and you say, oh, they have a tooth missing. You can see it, right? There's a defect in, in, in what, what the impression that's going to be made on the cartridge. But if you have just a standard um, ejector, it's just going to look basically the same as every other ejector. That makes sense. Um, one thing we understand is that Rick Allen's gun was purchased by him in 2001, do you know that if the gun is a bit older, it's more likely to have a defect, or would that be just a, a luck of the draw thing from the manufacturer? Um, it, well, you know, uh, it, there could be a defect from the manufacturer, but if there's a defect, it's almost certainly something that happened later. Um, and and well, it, it, it would be, it would be something that maybe improper usage, or maybe he, he it jammed several times. There may be somewhat. Maybe it was something that happened when it was when he was cleaning it. You know, a, an older gun can have defects, just like a, an older car is going to have a dent. You know, it didn't come from the manufacturer that way. It just uh, through its life, it, it can obtain that defect. What if theoretically we were able to prove to everyone's satisfaction? that the bullet found at the crime scene could be linked to Allen's gun. What sort of significance would that have in your mind? In my mind, it's still incredibly weak evidence because there are so many ways that a, uh, that a cartridge can, an unspent round can go through a gun and be, and be uh, ejected out. It could be that it jammed at the firing range and kicked it out and it fell and, it, and somebody else picked it up. It could be that somebody came over to his house and, and saw it uh, laying in, you know, in an ashtray in, in the living room and just picked it up, played with it, put it in their own pocket. It, it could be that it fell out of a car somewhere along the way and somebody picked it up and, you know, cleaning up highways but, and dropped just because it was a, you know, people have all kinds of things they put in their pockets as good luck charms or, you know, it could, so it could even accidentally have been placed there during a struggle. It could, it could have been purposely placed there by somebody who trying to, set Rick Allen up. It to me, the fact that it, even if it went through his gun, it's almost useless information because you don't have to, to clear it right there on the spot. It could have been cleared out of that gun back in two thousand one or whenever he first bought it. So it doesn't it tells you nothing about how long ago that gun that uh, cartridge was unspent round was cleared from his gun. It's meaningless evidence to me. And just to play devil's advocate for a second, because I, I don't know what the what the forensic ability would be on this, but are there ways to tell how old a bullet is or if it's been out in the elements for a while? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on what 
what cartridge, what round you're looking at. But I mean, if it's been out in water for years, it's going to, you know, there's going to be rust on it. There's going to, there's going to be tarnish. And, you know, if it's really, really bright, you know, it hasn't been there long. There's ways of, but there's nothing that's really scientific. It's just an eyeball test. Yeah, that, that round has been there for a while or no, it hasn't. That makes a lot of sense. And as far as, you know, courts go, um, you know, when you're practicing criminal defense, and I I know it probably could could depend on the location and whatnot, but is, you know, are these kind of ejector marks, do you frequently see them brought up by prosecution as some sort of evidence in in a trial? In 20 years of practice, I've never seen it come up, ever. Um, the tool mark examination reports regarding the, the markings that are left on a, on a bullet that went through a, a, a barrel. I've seen that often. I've never seen an ejector be, uh, or ejector markings be an issue in a case. Ever. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In your expert opinion, what could it mean that they're using them in in this very high-profile case? 
Well, I, I appreciate the word expert. I don't know that I'm an expert, but I've done a lot of this work. And what I think is that they're using this uh, information to get a probable cause finding without having to reveal other information. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, do you think that, I mean, you mentioned that the tool mark identification, uh, you know, technology and and things around that has, you know, is a little bit more contested than a lot of civilians may realize. And uh, could you speak more to that? Is it starting to get a pushback in courts in America in general? Um, in the jurisdiction where I practice, it's not being contested very much because uh, it's not used a, a bunch um, uh, in my in the courts where I'm at. Uh, but I know that there is a trend towards fighting uh, that th- this kind of information from the defense perspective. There's a trend in fighting it, it nationwide. I've, I go to conferences uh, all over, and I know that, it, particularly in, in the Northeast, there's been some cases where it has been excluded. And and we're talking about the more specific tool mark that is imparted by the barrel is far stronger than the ejector. So the tool marks in the barrel. Uh, evidence is being uh, contested quite vigorously around the country in other locations and uh, with some success. And I will I will take a step back and say, uh, since the 2009, uh, or I, I never can remember if it's nine or seven, but the National Academy of Sciences report that came out regarding forensic sciences, since that report was issued, there has been uh, a lot of uh, general contesting of what was otherwise considered ironclad forensic evidence. You know, uh, we're supposed to, uh, you know, uh, uh, believe the science is what people are saying you know, in, in, uh, with the COVID stuff and all, all of that kind of uh, stuff. But what in the defense side, it used to be that, well, a fingerprint is a fingerprint and DNA is DNA. But that, that uh, National Academy of Sciences report said there's really only one forensic science that has any capability of individualizing, of, of saying a person, an individual person left this particular piece of evidence. And that is DNA that is large enough uh, to, 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 to exclude other people and single source uh, biological samples. That's the only thing that the National Academy of Sciences said is capable of individualizing with any degree of so we're talking about, if you think about it, even fingerprints are not uh, not strong evidence, according to that report. But, but particularly these tool mark examination things, I think are, um, I think people are, are in, in the defense community are starting to realize that this just because somebody gets on a witness stand and says they're an expert in something doesn't make it true. Just seeing too many uh, experts in various fields being excluded and being uh, having controversies related to their opinions, to accept that as evidence uh, in, in general course in defense of the case. Um, do you envision that in this case, you know, obviously there's a lot of unknowns at this point, but let's say it goes to trial. Do you think that the defense will be able to find experts who are able to you know, kind of maybe cast some doubt on the tool marks um, in, in this situation, or is, is that kind of a budding field of, of people who are skeptical towards it? No, I don't think there's going to be any problem finding an expert. So we may get a dueling experts trial here? We we may, but if this 
if they are hinging their case on on this one piece of evidence, they're in a lot of trouble anyway. Yeah, I'm curious if you could speak more to that based on what you were reading in the probable cause affidavit. Well, you know, it's interesting to me, and and I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I haven't necessarily read it with a fine tooth comb, but I don't think any witnesses are are um, uh, there. There, I don't think there's any claim that witnesses identified him as the person they saw out there that day. Um, think that seems kind of interesting to me that there's that no one has been, sh- according to the affidavit, no one has been shown uh, a photographic lineup. I mean, in, in, in any old run-of-the-mill homicide case that I deal with, they've been shown multiple photo lineups uh, a lot of times. That is certainly something that has happened, but they didn't talk about it um, in, in the affidavit. So, you know, it raises a question in my mind, if they didn't do it, well, why didn't they do it? And if they didn't, if they did it and didn't mention it, is it because they're trying to keep that out of the public eye for some reason, or is it because the people identify identify someone other than Richard Allen. I, you know, I don't. I wouldn't be able to know, um, but I, I suspect that there's uh, a lot of other evidence, and that is uh, that was that exists, but that was left out of the affidavit, and that they're using this particular piece of evidence as the linchpin to get the affidavit to get him into custody. And I can talk about why why they would want to do that if you want. If you want me to, why would they hide evidence? Or uh, let me let me rephrase that: they're not hiding evidence; they're just not revealing everything uh, because they're not required to at this point. And there are good reasons for them to do that. Can you go into those? Yep. Um, it could be that there is uh, another person involved, and as we, you know, the news reports say uh, that the prosecutor said that he he said there are other parties or whatever his uh, other actors. Uh, and it could be that they want to get Richard Allen in custody so that he can, so they can put pressure on him to talk about what he knows. Um, you know, obviously there's a, there, there's a, a, a Keegan Klein is in custody and, um, his veracity is not strongly established so far in the record. And so he may have, um, there's just a lot of smoke around this this fire, right? There were so many things that happened circumstantially. Keegan was removed from the jail, placed into the uh, state police custody, and then a search of the the Wabash River ensues shortly thereafter. All of that sort of thing um, strongly suggests there's a connection to all of the activities. I mean, for four, four and a half, five years, nothing happened. And then all of a sudden, all of these things start happening. It seems like they've got to be connected because of their temporal closeness. So, Maybe uh, Keith and Klein or someone else has said some things about the facts of the case, and they want to get Richard Allen into custody, not reveal what has been said by Keith and Klein or the other person, whoever that might be. So, therefore, it's not published in, in, in the public. And then now they can ask uh, Richard Allen questions and, and see what kind of answers they get so they can compare them. You know, it's the, the hold back evidence uh, theory, but it's uh, but it's it's more directed towards Richard Allen than the public at this point. So that's one good reason to, uh, to 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 hold back that information uh, out of the. Uh, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm it's, it's going to be interesting in, in your in your experience doing criminal defense. Does the fact that there are other names possibly floating 
out there, as well as the fact that you have law enforcement and the prosecutor essentially saying, we're looking for other actors, we're looking for other players, there's more tentacles to this. Um, does Is that problematic from, from the prosecution standpoint? Or is is that, that can that be typical when you maybe only have enough to go after one person to start? Um, if, if the prosecution or law enforcement are saying there's someone else and they don't offer proof about that, who that other party might be or why it is that they've not been arrested and being prosecuted also, that's trouble for the prosecution. Um, they, they need to, if they're making those statements publicly and they don't offer proof about it somehow at a trial, that spells trouble. So to me, that suggests they, they're not, they're not just saying, uh, we, there might be somebody else. They, they are quite confident there's someone else involved. And what that plan is for prosecuting that person, uh, or those people, uh, you know, we don't know based on what's available in the public, but, if there isn't someone else as a defense lawyer, if I were representing Rick Allen, I would be, I would be all over that. They think it's somebody else. You know, this would be the message I would be sending to a jury. They think it's somebody else. They said it uh, from the beginning that there was somebody else involved. But in reality, my client wasn't involved at all. They know there was somebody else, and yet they didn't bring anybody else into, into court. They didn't offer proof about who this other person was or what connection they may have had to my client. It is very problematic for them if they are publicly identifying the possibility of another suspect and not prosecuting or linking that other suspect to to the defendant who's going to be on trial. Right. It's a it's a very major loose end, I imagine, from from putting a narrative together for a jury. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, what sort of things should people be looking forward to happen next? Oh, well, um, I don't I don't practice Indiana law, so I don't I don't know procedurally exactly all of the next steps. Um, but, um, you know, I, I would be surprised if this uh, we get to the point where there is a trial. I doubt it's going to be in March, but whenever it is, we're not going to get to a point where there is a trial and another suspect has not been named publicly. That, that, that would be something that has to happen at some point. In my, in my opinion, I think it has to happen. Um, even if uh, a deal has been struck uh, with that other person, there, there's going to have to be some kind of uh, acknowledgement, whether it's in the form of a press conference or press release or more, more likely a filing of some sort in a uh, public record. I think that has to happen in order for it to, to kind of be, uh, clear, be cleared up a little bit as the confusion regarding what happened. Uh, in this case, and how we got to the point where uh, where a, a previously unknown person has been charged and no connection to any of the other players that have been mentioned so far uh, publicly. You know, there's got to be some connection made. And that's what, um, you know, I, I, that's going to be the next big step, in my opinion. That's going to be the next big action that happens in this case. That makes sense. Um Moving out of the trial realm and more onto, um, you know, your experience with firearms, we wanted to ask you. So, Mr. Allen is said to have a Sig Sauer P226. Do you know anything about that gun or what sort of that conjures to mind for you? Kevin and I, we don't own guns and we don't really know them that well. So, I feel like we're 
we're, we, we'd be curious about what someone who does has to say about like that kind of gun. I, d- I don't have enough experience with, with that particular brand to, to know anything in particular that it, that it would say, I, I mean, it's a, it's a handgun, you know, it's, it's, um, a fairly commonly sold handgun, and so it's just the sort of thing that uh, that somebody uh, would, you know, that, that that is a that wants to buy a firearm for self protection or protection of the home, or you know, that's the sort of thing that they would buy. It's not like a, you know, some sort of automatic or uh, weapon that would be prohibited by law, but or or some, you know, some. Uh, Uzi type thing. So there's, it's not going to be something you're going to see on a movie and, and say, "Oh wow, that's a in- interesting gun." It's a handgun. You know, it's just a standard handgun, basically. That makes that makes sense. That's very helpful. So it's not it's not some sort of rarity. No, no, it's not the most commonly sold handguns, and I you know I'd have to look into that to know, but it, but it's not rare. That makes a lot of sense. And then I guess just as you're observing this, uh, any other things that have stood out to you about either what the prosecution or the defense is doing so far that seem kind of noteworthy or worth discussing? Um, the, the defense side is strongly asserting actual innocence so far. And, um, you know, that's, that's, um, that's what, what I would be doing. Um, but, uh, you know, generally, I, I would I don't give interviews, but I think they're in the position where they kind of have to. And so, um, but uh, it's um, it's it's pretty pretty noteworthy to me that that they are as strongly uh, uh, taking that position as they are, and that um, the Rick's family seems to be behind him. That's very interesting. To me. Is that unusual for a defendant's family to stand behind him in a case like this? Um, in, in, in cases that I handle, it's not terribly unusual, but this is not a normal case. This is a once in a career kind of case. I don't think I've had anything like this personally. It, it would, um, the fact that his, his defense lawyers mentioned that his, his wife is behind him means that, um, that, it, that that's probably true. I don't think she was, you know, there's varying reports as to whether she was there or not, but um, it, in a case like this, so high profile and it's of such an important nature, the, the facts that are alleged, um, you know, it is somewhat surprising that there's a mention that she's supporting him. I would suspect more, the more likely course of conduct for, for family members is to not not be involved terribly in, in, in the defense, but not necessarily being, you know, they would, you know, for example, Tony, Tony Klein giving his son money. His son is contacting him all the time. You know, that's the, the, the reports are to be believed. That's the sort of thing that I would, um, but, but doing it quiet, you know, that's what I would expect for them to be, for, for, for the defense lawyers to feel confident enough in her support to mention it, it to me is no one. And what does it mean exactly? I don't know, but it's noteworthy. That makes a lot of sense. And and you mentioned um, the defense asserting actual innocence. I'm sure for a lot of lay people, that might just seem like par for the course for a defense attorney to do. Kind of say, no, my guy's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. But I'm curious, mm-hmm. you know, in in your experience, what makes that somewhat unusual? 
Um, well, uh, a lot of times there are defenses that uh, that kind of suggest themselves from the facts. Uh, you know, you may have a self-defense claim. Uh, you may have an accident claim. Um, you know, you, there are all kinds of legal defenses that you can raise. Uh, but to, to say actual innocence right from the start, you're, you're kind of staking a claim um, that you better have some, uh, some, some facts to, to make stick. Uh, to, or else that's going to look, you're going to look foolish later on. Um, you know, that's why to me, the better course of action in my cases is always to say no comment. But, you know, these guys are in a position where they're, they're having to respond. And the fact that they went out on that limb and said actual innocence, um, not those, those words exactly, but, you know, the fact that they, they've raised that as a defense is, is a, is a big statement. It's, it's a big claim. And, um, Either, either you know they may, they know something we don't, or um, or they're just trying to bluff uh, so that they can you know get the the public uh, reaction uh, to to quieten down a little bit and actually consider whether maybe Rick is is not guilty. And I would imagine, not to put words in your mouth, I imagine that is important in such a high profile case to to kind of you know for the defense to at least make overtures to the public. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, it's huge. You've got to, you got to, in order to have a fair trial, you have to have people who will consider what, uh, you know, and who will say and actually consider whether he is not guilty. Um, and so you've got to you put that out there that you know just because you because just because there's an arrest and just because there's all this excitement doesn't mean that our client is is guilty or not. You know, it's um, uh, public public uh, you know press releases and press conferences do not make a prosecution. It's evidence. And, uh, and so I think that that is a very big step to, uh, to take to protect your clients. Now, and I've done it in, on multiple occasions after trials or after guilty pleas. I, I go to the, uh, to the press and, uh, and say, you know, that my client is not the monster that, you know, that he was made out to be. And you can see it based on the evidence that came out. This was, you know, a bad situation. And, you know, and, and that's more of a, an act of cleaning up my client's reputation a little bit, but if I were placed in their position, that's yeah, I would I would want to to put my defense out there um, as early as I can, um, and and still leave some flexibility. And the problem with the actual evidence or actual innocence uh, theory is there's not a lot of flexibility from that. Right. You either you either did it or you didn't do it, and yeah, that yep. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it seems like almost setting up another hurdle for themselves to be kind of, you know, proving that he's actually innocent rather than just creating reasonable doubt. Exactly, exactly. Well, listen, this has been incredibly insightful and helpful to us for for understanding this bullet evidence, but just also kind of looking at things from a strategic perspective all overall. We really, you know, you, you're self-deprecating, but you are an expert, obviously, and we really... We really appreciate yeah. it. We want to thank this attorney for coming on our show and sharing his expertise and his opinions. And again, we welcome other experts to come forward and speak with us. We're always looking to expand our knowledge base on the various aspects of this case that come up. And we're, we're very much interested in hearing more perspectives. So email us at murdersheet at gmail.com if you have something you want to chat with us about, or if you're a listener who's curious about an aspect of this case that you'd like explained by an expert. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, 
please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.